I'd like to read these verses from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Father, we're thankful that you are sovereign over the ultimate corners of the universe. That even as we heard this morning in another venue, that you have called every single star in the universe by its name. Lord, we know that if you know the names of trillions of stars, you certainly know our names. And if you know the numbers of the hairs on our head, we know, Lord, you know everything about us. And so, Father, we come to you today. Uh, I pray that there will be no uh, facade, but we will be open and honest before you, acknowledging that we have need of you every hour, every moment, every day. And Father, we know that uh, in our flesh there is no good thing, but through the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us, you can use us for the advancement of your kingdom, and that is our desire. No matter what our condition in life is, we're still servants in your hands that you will use to touch other lives. And Father, often it's primarily through prayer, which is, I think in the long run, the most powerful thing that we can do to advance the kingdom. And so we bow before you today. We pray for your presence here. Thank you for each of these men and women, and I trust that your hand of strength and blessing will rest upon each one. And Lord, that you will guide us today according to your perfect will, that you will bless as the word is proclaimed in the service and throughout this complex this day. And we pray that for those that are on our hearts, Lord, as family or friends who are not in your house today and who are not even cognizant of the fact that they need you, that you will work in their lives and draw them to yourself, that this will be a great day for them. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 24th chapter of Second Samuel, this is the last chapter of 2 Samuel. I'd like to read the first nine verses. We ended last time looking at this passage. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it, it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Arar, on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad towards Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Danjan and around to Sidon. They came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. Now when they had gone th about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. 
And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now, last week we began to look at this passage. We noticed in the first verse it says there that now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And this again seems to refer back to the event about three chapters back where the Lord sent a plague upon Israel because of Saul's violation of the treaty that had been made many years before by Joshua with the Hivites, with the, with the people of Gideon. What we find in this passage is that David is incited, and, and, and in 1 Chronicles it tells us that Satan tempted David to do this thing that we are reading about here. And the fact that Joab protests this, he says, why are you doing this? I would that God would give you a hundred times as many people as there are. Why, why do you want to do this? And then later we're going to see as we move into the next section of this, uh, of this chapter that uh, David later described his decision as sin. So Joab questioned his doing this. David later recognizes that this was sin. This indicates something here, of course, about the motivation. Obviously, a mere census, what, what sin can there be in a mere census? Going out and getting statistics about your country and discovering this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I don't remember I mentioned last time, but in the uh, 11th century, after William the Conqueror had conquered England, he ordered a census of the entire country down to counting the number of chickens in every man's yard. And, and this was called the Domesday Book. And seem, not exactly sure why it's called Domesday. It's actually Doom, D-O-O-M. But they think it comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Dome, which means law. But, but he wanted to know this for one particular reason, so he knew how much to tax the people. And so historically, censuses have been taken for two reasons. Now, of course, our census today is taken to know everything they can know about this country, you know, how many people of every age group and all the other things that are, are determined. But historically, censuses have been taken for the purpose of determining the tax base that the government has. What is the potential revenue from the population? A second factor is to determine the possible manpower out there that could be raised for a levy, for military duty if necessary. The census information that is given in this passage is only one thing. It gives us the number of males of military age in the land of Israel, Israel and, and Judah. And so this seems to indicate that David's purpose was to know what was his military potential. If I need to recruit an army, what is the potential for that recruitment? And what we discover here in verse 9 is that the result is there are 800,000 in Israel, 500,000 Judah. You add that together, that's 1.3 million men of military age who are able to be conscripted. In other words, they didn't count those who you know, had lost a leg or lost an arm or were somehow deformed in some way, but healthy men of military age, 1.3 million. Satan is tempting David to boast in his heart of the greatness of his power and then to confirm it with a census. I knew I was powerful. Look at all this potential I have out here. Now think about this for a minute. When David was fleeing from Saul, he could count 600 men. 
who were on his side, who went with him, who became the uh, camp followers or the actual army that David used to deal with. And now we're talking about a potential of 1.3 million men. That's a heady number when you think about it, coming from 600 to 1.3 million. 400 years later, there would arise a great king in Iraq, in Babylon, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, title of Nebuchadnezzar II. And he would stand on the roof of his palace one day, according to the record of Daniel, and he would look around and he would say, Is this not great Babylon which I have built? The one who tempted Nebuchadnezzar to do this is likewise tempting David at this point to think that he has built this great empire and that he has the military power to defend it and even to enlarge it if he so wished. Well, one of the things you clearly discover in Scripture is that God will not allow His people to take His glory for themselves. He simply will not allow it to happen. And, he, it, and it's not because God is proud and God needs all the glory and He's up there, He's you know, kind of looking down, and he, oh no, He's taking my glory. No, it's because He knows that if we take God's glory, we will cease to trust in Him and we will trust in ourselves and that's a hopeless thing because when we trust in ourselves, disaster follows. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And that gives us a pretty good summary of what we can do in our strength for the kingdom of God. It's got to be by the power of God alone. So God is going to discipline David here and Israel. David, because of his misplaced pride, and Israel for supporting the rebellions of Absalom and Sheba, which had not yet been dealt with, uh, the rebellion against David. So let's read at verse 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of God, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. One of the ways by which we know we are striving and endeavoring to truly serve the Lord is if we are convicted for our sin. If we sin without conviction, then it's probably true that we don't have the Lord in our lives to begin with. But when we sin, if God speaks to us and points out our sin, as he has done here to David, as he speaks to David and points out this, your willfulness, you've gone ahead and done, even Joab, <laughs> Joab was far from a righteous man. Even Joab knew it was wrong and said to David, you shouldn't do it. But you pushed ahead and you did it anyway. 
And so the Spirit of God came upon David and convicted him of his sin. That's one of the great factors about David that I think keeps us always thinking of his, as, him as being one of the leading um, through great repentance. And here we have the same. As a result of these words from Gad, David acknowledged his sin and asked the Lord to remove his iniquity. Remember, he is the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he has written a great portion of the Psalms. And he knew that God was merciful and forgiving because he had often written of the mercy and the grace of God. Let me just read one example. It's one that's very familiar to us in the 103rd Psalm, where we read these wonderful words, beginning at verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Sometimes proud dust, but dust nevertheless. So David knew the Lord was merciful. God had inspired him over and over again to write passages similar to this one in Psalm 103. Did God hear the prayer of David? Yes, God heard the prayer of David. And we might say, but God, David has sinned so horribly so many times. How can you keep hearing his prayer? Well, you remember when, when Peter so boldly said to Jesus, how many times shall we forgive? A whole seven? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, by which, of course, he didn't mean 490 and 491, you throw the spear. He meant you, there's no limit to your forgiveness. So God heard David's prayer and he responded in a different way this time. He sent the answer through Gad. Along with Nathan, Gad was the court prophet in the court of David at that particular time. He was also a chronicler, as we have seen before. We've read the passages in Chronicles, which tells us that both Nathan and Gad wrote down much of the information that we have about this period of time in David's life. And as we saw in 2 Samuel here in verse 11, and as we read also in 2 Chronicles, Gad is called the king's seer, S-E-E-R, which means one who sees, spiritually sees. God gave Gad the difficult and unenviable task of going to David and saying, yes, David, God has forgiven your sin, but you must pay the consequences. The fruit of your sin must be harvested. This is a powerful lesson, I think, to us. We understand from this account in 2 Samuel and many other places that we cannot sin with impunity. We cannot sin and then expect God to forgive us and to wipe away all the consequences. 
If we confess our sin, the scripture tells us he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and he will always do that if we honestly go before him and confess our sin and ask for forgiveness. But God does not remove the scars, nor does he take the repercussions away. They will come. As Christians, we have the free will to rebel. We can live carnally if we so choose. It's not a happy life. I think all of us have tried it at some time. And we know that we're constantly feeling guilty and knowing that we're not doing the right thing. And it's because partly the Bible has a law, the law of sowing and reaping. And those that we have impacted, unfortunately, will reap even as we reap from our own sin. This law is most clearly stated in Galatians chapter 6. Let's just refresh our pure minds with that passage. Galatians chapter 6, reading at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. When we look around at all the people in this world, on television and in various countries of the world, who are mocking God... We just have to turn to that scripture, this scripture here, where it says, God is not mocked, which means, yeah, somebody may raise his fist and mock God for the moment, but in the long run, God is not mocked because every man will reap what he has <coughs> sown. I think it's abundantly clear, not only from this passage, but many passages of scripture, plus the examples that we know personally <laughs> of numerous lives and read about thousands of other lives that if we do not choose to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we will pay for it in this life as well as in the next. We will pay for it in this life in that we will reap the evil consequences of disobedience. And that's what David is reaping here. There's no way to, to sugarcoat this. Seven years of famine, not such a good thing, right? Three months of an enemy army rampaging through the land. No, not something to look forward to either. Three, de three days of plague. Well, our thinking about SARS and a few other things like that, that doesn't sound such, like such a good thing either. And so, in this life, David would reap the consequences of his disobedience. And sometimes those consequences are tragedy as this is going to be. This is a tragedy. There isn't any way to cut this. Thousands are going to die. That's a tragedy. But, but in addition to that, uh, there, there's the, the lack of peace, the lack of joy, the lack of contentment. And we see this all the time in the world, do we not? Why is it so many people are, are on alcohol and drugs? Why is it so many people are killing themselves? It's because they have no joy. They have no peace. They have no contentment. They do not have what the Hebrew word in the Old Testament sums up in the word shalom. 
even as Gwen mentioned it this morning. Shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean, well, there's no war in the land. It means peace. It means contentment and joy. It means everything that you can think of. I don't mean giddy happiness, but the good things that make you feel secure and, and uh, like there's well-being, all wrapped up in that. The people who are not walking with God do not know shalom. It never exists in their lives. But, but for believers who, who disobey the word of God, there is not only this, but in, in walking in disobedience, we miss the fork in the road, so to speak. You know? we, we take the wrong fork. Instead of following the path God has set before us, we follow some other path that does not lead to God's ultimate purpose. And then also in the next life, there is a price to pay. We don't really understand it all, but one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me read from 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, sorry, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So just because we're children of God and are saved from hell doesn't mean there isn't yet a judgment to face in this sense not the ultimate judgment of the sheep and the goats, but we all must all stand before this judgment seat of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 10 we see a, a bit of a, a, an elaboration of this. According to the grace of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on, on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Now it's, the scripture is not terribly wordy on, on, on this here, but we do get a sense in which as Christians we do face an hour in which uh, God will deal with us through Jesus Christ uh, according to how we lived as believers in this life. And there will be loss if we have built with wood, hay, and stubble, like two of the three little pigs. And uh, we will suffer loss, yet we will be saved, yet so as through fire, whatever all that means. Maybe we get into heaven smelling like fire. I don't know exactly what that uh, might mean. But, but it, it, it warns us, it tells us that simply to be a believer in Christ does not keep us from having to face God on behalf of how we have lived in this life. And so it was for David here. In this account in David's life, we see 
that an awful price is about to be paid by David and Israel for the sins of both. God drove home the seriousness of his sin by making him choose the consequences. Think about it. Have, did you ever do that when you were raising your child? And say, all right, you're going to be punished. Now you can choose one of these three. <laughs> That's terrible. David reacts to this. In verse 14, we, we find the highlight of the burden placed upon David because he responds to, to Gad and he says, I am in great distress. This doesn't mean that it's just that his stomach was upset or that he had a headache, you know, here. The Hebrew word, which is translated distress, means to bind, to tighten the ropes right completely tight. So the lesson is clear. David had the free will, as we all have, to choose to do good. Yet he chose to do evil. In so doing, his options disappeared. His freedom disappeared. I don't mean ultimately, but in the situation, his freedom disappears because no longer does he have the choice to say, oops, sorry, God, I, I did the wrong one here. I choose this good response or this, this good result. No. He only can choose between three bad things. He is in a bind, and that's why he says, I'm in distress. I'm all bound up. I have no choice. Really, I, I only have bad things to choose amongst. What we gain from this, of course, is that as we walk with God and when we sing the songs about the freedom we have in Christ and, you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, and that is all absolutely true. We have wide freedom of choice to choose between good things. But we also have the freedom to choose evil. And if we choose evil, our freedom disappears and we're locked in the consequences of our evil choices. To me, the best example of this, the best illustration in Scripture, comes from the very beginning when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they had the choices God laid before them, the whole garden and all of its beauty and all the wonder there. And I don't think we can even begin to think about what it was like because we just think of a garden, you know, like... Even Bouchard's gardens, let's say, and all of their wonders, would, would be nothing compared to what the Garden of Eden would have been. And, and, and God said, choose whatever you want. I have one thing only that you must not choose. Just one thing. And when they chose to do evil, the consequences became inevitable. They could not reverse the consequences. They couldn't say, oops, God, that wasn't such a good choice. I cancel that one out. I choose this instead. They couldn't do that. They had made their choice. Their freedom was gone. They had no other option but to die, spiritually, ultimately, physically as well. And so here are David's options. The Lord through Gad says, these are your options, David. Seven years of famine which, of course, implies drought. Think about seven years. That's a long time. Remember, when the seven years of famine came upon Egypt, there was a warning. And Joseph was sent to, to store up grain so that they could make it through the seven years of famine. But here it would just come, bam, right now, with no seven years of abundance to get all ready for it. Just wham, seven years of famine would be there. And there's no world you know, FAO uh, or any other organization to, to bring in food 
to supplement it. Or three months of an enemy army running rampant through your land, chasing you, David, from pillar to post. Well, David had been chased from pillar to post by Saul for 10 to 15 years. He'd had it up to here, and he wasn't going to do that again. He didn't, couldn't stand the idea of his land being trampled under the feet of foreign troops. And so this left him with just the third option. It is the shortest, but it is also probably the most deadly. Three days of plague. Pestilence, Scripture says. SARS. SARS. <laughs> a specially difficult variety of SARS. A more lethal variety of SARS, yes. Well, David says, I know the mercy of God, and I know that man is not merciful. Therefore, I do not want to fall into the hands of man. Let me fall into the hands of God, which was by way of saying, God, I choose the three days of plague. Well, let's read in uh, chapter 24 at verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning, from the morning until the appointed time. Seventy thousand men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Character of David keeps coming out, doesn't it? That's, that's one of the ways by which we know the genuineness of someone's walk by God, with God, is when times go south, when conditions go south, when things get really bad, they react in ways that are redeeming. True to his word, God sent the pestilence. David had chosen, the pestilence came upon the nation. There's no implication here of the time frame. Did the pestilence come the very following day? We don't know, but it probably didn't delay long. And it fell upon the nation in order to discipline both David and the people. God does not send punishment for no end, for no obvious purpose. Its purpose is to discipline. Its purpose is to create awareness in the minds and the heart of people of the truth of the so-reap law. The pestilence was some virulent form of disease, probably. Possibly a disease that might be recognizable today. The CDC might be able to get under the microscope and say, aha, it's anthrax or, you know, some other such thing. We don't know. But it's also possible that it was a specially prepared disease that was sent by God that would be totally unknown to modern science. Now. Yeah. What would liberal scholars say about this? Liberal scholars would claim that, oh, the ancients, they had no understanding of what epidemics were. They didn't understand disease. And of course, if you've studied history, and, and our doctors know this far better than the rest of us, that the existence of germs was not known until within the last 200 years, proven anyway. And, and even things like um, scurvy, for, for centuries was thought just, 
Now, scurvy is a, is a vitamin deficiency, but nevertheless, it was thought to be just, oh, well, we're sailing in bad hum humors. You know, the atmosphere is bad where our sailing ship is, and that's why everybody's sick. We've got to get out of here. Didn't realize that it had another cause. So liberal scholars would say, well, the ancients had no understanding of disease. They, ex they, they blame all unexplainable events upon the supernatural powers, you know. And that's why they practiced magic and so forth. And so this whole story here about David doing this and Gad and all of this was concocted just to try to explain an epidemic. And that's how liberal scholars face almost everything that happens in the, in the scripture. They, they, they try to modernize it within modern, enlightened man's thinking. They rationalize everything rather than being willing to admit the supernatural intervention of God in this life. I believe that what we have here is an example of the direct divine intervention in the affairs of his people. In order that the people might understand that the wages of sin is death and that obedience to the word of God is not just a matter of whether you feel like it or don't feel like it. It's a matter of life and death. We don't have the option, the ultimate option, of saying, well, you know, the Word of God's fine. It's like a lot of books. It's interesting, but, you know, so I, I'll just live by my own feelings. Well, the wages of that is death. Obedience to God is the only way that we can attain eternal life. And we can only obey God if we read His book and believe it, because it's the only source of truth. Although it's not expressly stated, the implication here is that the disease spread rapidly and killed quickly. The passage clearly states that an angel was the source of the pestilence, or at least was the, was the deliverer of the pestilence, pestilence. In verses 15 and 16 here, they seem to indicate that the disease spread throughout Israel. It says, from Dan to Beersheba, these 70,000 men died, with the exception of Jerusalem which the angel was about to strike when God called a halt to the whole thing. The scripture says it was to be a three-day pestilence. I don't know. Our doctors could tell me better. Is there such a thing as a, as a pestilence that could spread through a rural society of covering 10,000 square miles in three days? I don't think so. <laughs> Even the bubonic plague which is, you know, kind of deadly. It, it took, you know, it, it, in six-month increments to, to, to sweep north. In fact, they've drawn, well, I don't know exactly what you'd call a line connecting advancement of diseases on a map. Uh, you know, they call them isohyets if it has to do with uh, rain and contours if it has to do with elevation, but iso disease, <laughs> whatever it is. It, 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 it took six years to go from southern Italy to northern Scandinavia. Now, that's a lot bigger than Israel. But I think the implication here is that this was supernaturally inflicted upon the people by the agency of God's angel. So God's angel just said, and there it was. It didn't have to be spread by natural vectors. It didn't have to worry about mosquitoes or rats. It was carried by the power of God from person to person. And this is underscored by the fact that so many died so quickly. The three-day judgment implies that all of the deaths occurred in three days. Now, most diseases, if a 
disease lasts for a period of time, you're going to still have die-off even after the thing is more or less stayed. But the implication is the first guy died the beginning of the first day, the last guy died the end of the third day. And nobody died of this disease before or after that three-day period. Well, that just doesn't happen as far as I know in history. And, and, and therefore, this would be clearly seen as divine judgment. They couldn't say it was anything else. You couldn't rationalize it any other way. It's God who did it. We're told that 70,000 men died from the pestilence. Now, we think about this, 70,000 men. The word for men here is the word, is the Hebrew word ish, which means man. And if it is used only in its sense of male, which is how it is usually used, then either the disease was only fell on men or it fell on women also, but they were just not mentioned, which so often happens in Scripture, right? When, when the Israelites left uh, Egypt and went into the Promised Land, it said there were 600,000 men. But we know that there were a whole lot more than 600,000 men because there were women and children, men of fighting age. And so you double that to get all the males and you double that to get the females. They just weren't mentioned. And so personally, I believe that we're talking about probably a death rate of 100, I mean a death number of 140,000 counting men and women who died in this plague. Now think about it. If the same percentage were to die in our society of a disease, it would take 8 million lives. Now, would we consider that a disaster? Yeah, I think so. 140,000 out of the population of that time, which might have been around 5 million, that percentage, if you apply that to the 285 million who live in America, it would result in 8 million total dying. That's a lot of people. You know, we, we get freaked out in this country of, you know, I mean, they're freaked out about SARS. And what is SARS killed now? 400 worldwide or something like that? 7,800, I saw. 7,800. There's a byline instead. It's uh, diminishing now and coming to an end, and then it's uh, the investment system. Hmm. Oh, a lot more died than the last time. Yeah, than the last time I saw a banner. <laughs> anyway, 7,800 worldwide out of 6.3 billion. Something to be concerned about, of course, but compared to this, nothing at all. Well, God brought an end to the plague. Did he bring an end to the plague because the three days were up? Or did his mercy simply say, don't strike? I mean, in his own mercy, did he decide not to strike Jerusalem? Well, we, we can't answer that question. But we do know that God's mercy was poured out upon David and his people. The plague was stayed. It was brought to an end. The lesson was learned. And God worked a great work. Well, I have a little more I want to say about this, but uh, particularly as we get into the latter part of the chapter when something really amazing happens, which is on the good side as far as David is concerned. And we'll talk about that the next time.